Hey, Slip Angle listeners. Abe here. We did another show with Gary, um, but struggled a little bit with the audio um, using the same programs we've run previously. But uh, Gary cuts in and out a little bit, but uh, the stories are pretty good. And halfway through the show, we make some adjustments and uh, the audio quality gets a lot better. So we appreciate your patience and uh, listen to the show if you enjoy listening to Gary tell stories about uh, racing in the 80s, which we always love talking about. working while I'm uh, doing this, so uh, I'll put myself on mute if I can. I haven't even tried that on either. Hang on a second, but while I figure that out. Yeah, you just started breaking up, but it may have been because you were trying to hold the phone. Yeah, I was just winging a thing around here. Uh, I don't know if I can put this on mute. I actually don't know. I don't know if you can either, but that's weird. I'm not going to be making a lot of noise, but um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be like a regular slip angle without a lot of banging and hammering. I, I was going to say, I'm not going to make a lot of noise, but I'm shooting eight penny tails into... into <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually standing and varnishing something. So, so Gary, Good. what do you want to talk about? There's, uh, there's endless stuff. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I thought it was interesting. There were a couple of things I said. So, uh, I actually don't have that in front of me anymore. You know, when we go back through and look at the decades of, of racing, uh, I was saying some of the things is, you know, the amount of guys that I've worked with that have driven uh, over the years, uh, you know, some of the best races that I've been involved with. And, uh, and I think what's always interesting to uh, a, uh, uh, our listeners is, some of the great fixes, you know, that have gone on in, in races. And that's not even talking about, you know, destroying the car, breaking in the half and, and everybody <laughs> flogging for, you know, 18 hours and, and getting it all back together again and, and doing well in the race. You know, uh, I, I can remember one case uh, where we actually had a roller with Jägermeister orange paint. And uh, we're going back on race day uh, from a shop that was outside of the the uh, racetrack. And I'm on the trailer with the roller rolling paint. And uh, <laughs> as the car is, is pushed to the grid, orange paint's actually dripping on the race, <laughs> dripping on the racetrack. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you guys. But, uh, I think we definitely already started. Uh, that's that's a good story right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, really, I think most people that have listened to this and uh, they're probably they're not taking notes, but you know, I started back in the late seventies, and uh, right off the bat. Uh, with Preston, we bought a 935. We'd done a couple of races with a Ferrari Daytona. We had an RS10 time. We actually had the best one. We had the best one. 
that was driven by Howdy Holmes, who later uh, went on to do some uh, IndyCar stuff. Um, but in 79 in Daytona, we actually bought uh, one of the Interscope 935s. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, the second race that we had with that, And we had Harley Haywood and Peter Grant uh, with an unfortunately motor on it. But um, in those early days, and we had Bobby Bobby Rahal Sr. Uh, drive Harley's driven multiple times. AJ Foyt, Derek Bell, Jan Lammers, Andy Wallace, Bob Wallach, Oscar Larari, Terry Bootson, Hochstuck, Jean Louis Slusher. John Paul Jr. and sadly the anniversary of that was discovered But that's just some of the top guys that we had. And whenever you have a, a professional team, there's always a couple that are, you know, creme de the creme, the, the guys that rise to the top. Uh, Larry was that way. Uh, Terry Boothson. Uh, Jan Lammers, I mean, that, that was the guys, those were the guys that you saved them to the end. You know, that was, you know, middle of the night, it's pouring rain, you need somebody to go out there and do a three-hour stand in Daytona. Um, you plug in one of those guys, or you're close to winning or a position. Uh, so the last couple of hours of Daytona or wherever it is, those are the guys that you can put in the car that you can depend on. You know, that we're going to go out. I remember at Sebring, I think it was 95, going for Pure myself, built the uh, Toy Story, Toy Store uh, Spice, Chevrolet Spice. And we'd stolen a bunch of ideas from the Electromotive Nissan, mm-hmm. and basically passed all the air to the car. And the regulations in those days were really pretty wide open. And we made a terrific car, and knowing that we were only going to do Daytona and Sebring uh, with it because we didn't have that big of a budget, but we had enough of a budget that we could, we could build the car, and about five of us built this thing, uh, built it as an endurance car, uh, had honeycomb in the side so you could take a hit, you could push on it, was, everything was, was drawn in so that if you did take a crash, Within reason, it wouldn't get to anything critical at the point. Big, heavy coolers uh, and a big oil cooler. <clears throat> and I remember the car was bright yellow and we were racing as a Ferrari 333s of uh, Andy Evans's team, where the, uh, where the cars to beat. And uh, with confidence, you know, we had Derek Bell and uh, Andy Wallace and Jan Lammers in the car. And I could say to Jan and Andy that, you know, you guys, you can beat this car. I want red paint. My exact words were, at the end of this 12-hour race, I want red paint down both sides of this car. (laughs) And we did. And we did. And unfortunately, we finished second. Um, We had actually were in the lead, and the pits got closed uh, at the last stop. Uh, before they should have, there was a whole controversy about that. Um, I think there's a woodpecker, a 
That's me. It's me. Yeah, I'm working I know. Still. <laughs> but having a guy like that that you could put in the car, Larari was the same way. He was an absolute, absolute fierce competitor. Um, there's a great, and there's actually some footage on YouTube, the West Palm Beach Grand Prix in about 87, 88. And AJ Foyt had his own team and he had a uh, 962. And, you know, it's one of these concrete mousetraps. I mean, it's no runoff, really yeah. hard to pass. And Oscar, everything, yeah. Oscar was really good at those kind of places. Um, and he was getting ready to pass Foyt. Uh, he caught Foyt. And he comes over the radio, and I'm on the radio with him, and, and he goes, you know, you must, you must tell the 14 car, you must or 14 or one, I forget what number it was. And so we knew Jack Starnes, who was his uh, team manager, and he sent a runner down to Jack and said, Jack, Larari's catching him. You know, he's going to get by him. And Jack goes, there's no way that I can go on the radio and tell AJ to get out of the way and let this foreigner go by him. <laughs> so Oscar catches him and waits about, calls me on the radio and waits about four or five more corners and then punts him and okay. actually causes him to crash, rips off, uh, rips off a corner uh, on Foyt's car, spins him out, and Oscar keeps going. Well, uh, if you listen to Raffoff and the guys that were in race control at that point, you see AJ, and it's on TV. <clears throat> you can still look it up, I think, on YouTube. Um, he's trying to get the car turned around He's driving the car back towards the racetrack on three wheels and a bunch of stuff hanging off it. And Mark tells the story that we're sitting there watching this going, now what the hell is he going to do? He waits for Oscar to come by wearing the Torno car. So it's this bright green, white, and red, you know, wild paint scheme that we had, wrap, actually. And just as Lorari's coming into view, Foyt punches it come shooting up onto the racetrack oh, to no. try to T-bone Oscar. And Oscar goes by so quick that he Foyt touches him in the rear of the car just enough to get the back end loose. Oscar, after the race, had no idea what was going on. And when we showed him the, the damage, he thought he'd hit some oil. Uh, and as we get him out of the car, we see... Jack Starnes come running down and he goes, um, I don't know who the guy's name was that was driving your car. All I know it was, and I'm not going to say the word, but this MF and AJ's on his way down here. So he said, I would suggest you guys hustle this guy out of here. Uh, not have a seat. Uh, which we did. <laughs> uh, but, you know, guys like that were just were spectacular. You know, they yeah. would do anything that they can uh, to to win the race uh, or get around somebody. Uh, numerous times, Larari took to the grass, you know, and, and he passed eight cars, I think, at uh, Suzuka one time when we had problems in qualifying. And at the start of the race, went from 14th to 3rd, you know, in the first corner uh, kind what, of thing. Was, but, it, was there any kind of penalty back then for uh, – yeah. like Punching AJ Foyt? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think we got. I don't think we got a penalty. It was a lot less 
but it was, I mean, it was something dramatic, but in that case, uh, he should have gotten out of the way, so. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, having the opportunity and, and working with top guys like that, it's different now. When you worked, when we had Mercedes a couple of years ago, the 24-hour, and we had uh, factory AMG guys in the car. And uh, it's really funny, you know, there's these young kids, I mean, even though they're top, you know, gold, platinum uh, drivers, they're really reluctant to tell you what the car needs. They're so, they have grown up in the system of, you know, you look at the data, you make the decision as the engineer what you think the car wants. I'll drive the car and I'll say, and that's it. And it was really kind of frustrating working with that. When you work with somebody like uh, Bob Wallach or or you know, Peter Gregg was this way, Holbert was this way from the guys I know that worked with him. Um, you know, they would sit there and go, we need two clicks more rebound in the rear. I need 8% more spring in the front. I feel like I've got too much rake. It made you a better chief mechanic or better crew chief or better engineer because you had a guy that was sitting there and this is before you had you know as much data as we do now uh on it uh in fact some of in the early days you had no data you know you want to know where the air was going to put a mechanic in the passenger side and stick your hand out the window <laughs> or, or put some oil, put some oil on it you know, so after how did um going from driver to driver then you know, are there, were there different setups that like were <clears throat> preferred between drivers or did everyone try and find some kind of balance and just, you know, find something in the middle that worked? Right? Yeah, you know, that was one of those things. It would depend on the race if it was a long race. I mean, you had a lot of guys um, that wanted just the fastest, the fastest setup. And I remember a story, I thought one of the most uh, underrated guys uh, who did extremely well. He did it in Formula One, and he drove for the Mercedes, and he drove for uh, Porsche, uh, Porsches for a while. And when Jean Louis was one of the factory drivers with the uh, Jaguar, and he was there when Cheever and Warwick and Lammers and, and Wallace and, and, you know, all the guys were there. <clears throat> And he came with a little bit different philosophy. And he said, you know, I would set up the, the car and I wanted a little bit of understeer in the beginning of a stint because as fuel load changed and the car would go to neutral, and as I would get to the end of the stint, I've got a little bit of oversteer. So I'm actually setting up the car um, to save the car, save the tires and the rest of it. So that's something that with some of the other guys that might have been a little bit faster than me, you would have set up the car. That is, that's the fastest lap right there. But when you got about 20 minutes into the stand, you yeah. know, it, it transitioned totally into oversteer in the, uh, in the back of it. There's a funny thing. Um, Miami Grand Prix in 1984, Mike Lucci and I were there with the 935 with Foyt and Wallach. And um, AJ was not really comfortable racing at the uh, on the concrete street circuit uh, at that point with the car. You know, we had no diff in the car, it had a spool. Um, <clears throat> Mike and I had actually taken a, a little bit more weight. We'd move the battery 
for our phone is clear. And we actually took a steel, another steel pipe, and filled it with lead and made a bracket and bolted that up on the front of the chassis behind the main oil cooler and the nose just to try to transfer weight to the front uh, <laughs> to try to get this thing in. And I remember Wallach was, I think, three and a half, about three and a half or four seconds quicker than AJ was. Okay. Um, and we got AJ in the car, and AJ just goes, I, you know, I can't, it's just not working for me. And in those kind of street course uh, schedules, there's not a lot of time. <clears throat> and you don't really have garages, and, you know, I forget where we were working on it, but it was all very, very basic. And so he wanted us to change the car. And Mike and I look over at Bob. Bob's just kind of quietly shaking his head. And we had just finished second uh, with those guys at Daytona. Mm -hmm. And he's shaking his head. So probably one of the few guys that, that were able to get away with this. We took off the right front wheel. He wanted to stop in the front sway car. We took off the right front wheel. And Mike and I crawled underneath the, uh, the, in the wheel arch and looked at each other and just took a couple of inches and just rattled them around and <laughs> put the wheel back on and said, go try that. And he went out and, you know, did five laps and came back in and he says, that's, I think that's better. And I hate to tell it. But it was getting him track time too. And, and, yeah, and yeah. having to pitch that 935 took time to learn that. We came back in the assets to do some more. And yeah. uh, we did exactly the same thing, put it back on there. And he went quicker. You know, he was never as quick as uh, his bone was uh, there, but you wouldn't expect him to be at that uh, point in his career. Um, but, you know, you pretty much tried to get the fastest setup that you could and have the guys adapt to that. Very important to have the same size of drivers, so you're not sitting around moving the seats back and forth, or you know having to change the belts. And we used to have in some cases um, on the seat on the lap belts, we would take them out to um, the shoemaker, and so on, like two or three other um, uh, buckle buckles on it. Really? So that you could sit there instead of sitting there trying to twist the crop strap to take up the slack on it uh, and different size pads. Uh, one year, I think 89, my mom, Roland Ratzenberger, and Roland was probably 6'1. And Mauricio Sandrasalo, who was maybe 5'3, 5'4. <laughs> Actually, somewhere I have a picture of him like a baby uh, to put him in the car. He weighed 125 pounds. Five foot three and Roland probably weighed 185, 190 pounds and six foot one. Huge. And then we had another guy that was like in the middle. So trying yeah. to fit all those kind of guys and get them into the car. But, you know, back to you would set what is the fastest of the car without it being dangerous. You know, so many times the fastest lap you're qualifying set up uh, loses fast. You know, in a lot of cases, uh, but you have to consider what's weather going to be, 
what's a tire degradation going to be? You know, how slippery is this track get? Um, and and why you might have a qualifying setup and then go back to a race setup, a little more downforce on it, uh, changing some changing some things to make it a little more comfortable for everybody. Because at the end of the day, in a long race, you know, you, you will get into trouble if you make it too too fast, too loose. Uh, chances are you're going to be too much on the edge uh, at that point. There are cases um, where you would start cranking down for say, you know, if it's uh, the, the next morning and you made it through and, you know, you realize you need a little bit more speed or whatever, you know, maybe a gurney change. Normally not something as drastic as a, as a win, but we've done that in the past as well, uh, you know, in a six-hour race. Uh, adding wing to the car front, you know, in front wings, you know, or the back wings, or doing something to to actually change the the, the speed of the car during the event. So here's something I wanted to ask <clears throat> you. Uh, you and I talk every once in a while about Formula One, and something to me about the sport that I think is kind of off putting is the difference in. Uh, uh, pace between qualifying pace and race pace, um, because cars are, you know, what, six to eight seconds slower per lap during racing than they are during qualifying. Crazy. And that's, that's, that's a lot. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm wondering you as a, um, kind of a, a series, uh, director in the past and things, what do you, First question, is that a problem in your mind? And second, if it is, what would you do to try and uh, speed up the cars during the race? You know, I, I mean, on on some of those things, and I'm not involved in Formula One. I had a couple opportunities uh, in the past in uh, 89, 85 and 89 uh, to go, and uh, I decided to stay in Group C. Uh, at that point, I had a real good uh, life and family and, and had a uh, racing family that is, uh, and had a real good time. I, th I think the biggest concern is if everybody's going faster in qualifying and everybody's going uh, is reduced speed to, to go in the race, then it doesn't really matter. You know, I, don't, I see it from, when I look at it from the, the qualifying show what's the quality of the show at the end of the day even though you go to war when you're on a team to go to a race and you you and you do beat the everybody that's there whether it's the first guy to practice or the first guy in line to go out on practice or first guy in qualifying <laughs> i'm going to beat you every time that there's right. an opportunity that we got to go to but i think um if you look at it as the quality of the show, as long as everybody goes faster in qualifying and everybody reduces, it's when you've got cars that are, you know, five. Then, you know, look at Gurney, look at Gurney's, you know, when they had the Toyota. I mean, they just totally dominated um, those couple of years that those cars ran. Um, it, it wasn't good. I mean, it, it was fantastic at that point for those guys and but there were very few really good races because those cars were just so much quicker 
I think the other thing that you look at, and I know this from our experience, um, you know, the qualifying tires that those guys have can easily at certain tracks be a couple of seconds um, yeah. on that. So, <clears throat> and we've had, we've had Yokohama qualifiers, I've had Michelin qualifiers that, and without tire warmers, you had a lap to warm it up. You had a lap to do the time, maybe the second or the third lap, maybe the third lap was there. And by the fourth lap, they were junk. Junk. And, it, and junk. <laughs> junk. And I'm telling you, that sucker came off at 260 degrees after three laps. Holy and, cow. yo, uh, it's unbelievable. You did not grab those tires without, without gloves on. I probably still have rubber embedded in my hands from, oh my God. from, from doing that. So, I mean, you look at some of that stuff. Um, I don't know right now, uh, Abe, if they're using different fuel. Uh, for instance, when we were in DTM in 95 and I was running I was with KK Rosberg, uh, KK's crew chief in DTM with the Opal team, um, we used uh, Elf uh, fuel. And this was How something much? 160. Oh my God. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, you know, it was absolutely, I mean, it was beyond rocket fuel. I mean, it was incredibly, incredibly dangerous um, for a, like... lot of, of, a lot of respect, uh, aspects, but it was worth 50 horsepower. And, and those motors that we had at the time were only 470 horsepower. It gave us right. 50 horsepower, but it was a thing oh that God. we just used in qualifying. So, you know, you had a qualifying tire, you had qualifying fuel, um, you know, so you had an artificial, kind of an artificial time um, uh, at that point because of those things. You know, WEC right now, uh, you read what Gerard Nouveau is talking about, the issues that they have is he wants to develop a different qualifying format for WEC because he said it should be more exciting. You know, whether it's a uh, an elimination and it goes down or kind of an um, system, you know, fast five, something mm -hmm. like that to make it more exciting, to make it part of the show, not just to say, oh, you want to have it at that point that people can come out there and, and look at it. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, in the days, <clears throat> I, I can go back to our, Again, the magical season, 1986, in Group C, when we won the World Championship, the team championship, um, we had a qualifying engine. We had a 3.2-liter uh, engine from Porsche, because at the time, the Rothmans Porsche team was still running. And the factory support uh, guys despised the factory Porsche team. Why and I uh, just in-house you know in-house friction and so you had some really good teams in 86 we had the most uh we were the biggest uh, porsche customer at brun and so we had uh access to anything special well they had a three point Uh oh, we lost Gary. Gary. Call Gary back. Is he uh, cutting in and out? Is he doing it for you too? 
Oh man, yeah. call him back. Tell or text him. Can you uh, text him? I can't leave my screen on my phone or it drops off. I've dropped off three times. <laughs> man, it's hard. Recording podcast. Um, Just keep it recording. Yeah, yeah shoot him. Shoot him a text. See the, the things we do for a podcast, right? Uh, it sounds like he's back. Gary, are you back? Yeah, I didn't think I left. I could hear you guys the whole time. Oh, we lost you for a second. So you were saying, you were talking about how Brun was the biggest uh, customer uh, of Porsche, and you had yeah, okay. a three-point something qualifying engine. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, I couldn't maybe to the back porch if you think I'm breaking up. Uh, you're not breaking up. You're just like uh, volumes going in and out. I, I thought it was my phone, but it, it's doing it for Abe a little bit too. So. Okay. Yeah, if there's a place where you might get better Wi-Fi, we can give it a try. Uh, let me get a little bit closer. I'm on the outside outside room here. Hang on. In, in your palatial 14-acre uh, ranch, you're going to find yourself some Wi-Fi. Yeah, right. <laughs> not stand underneath the tree. Uh, we'll see. Okay. So I was talking about how you would do things for qualifying. In those in in those days, we had this massive qualifying engine. What was different? And about nobody it? else, nobody else had it. <clears throat> it. We were told that the thing cannot run more than an hour and a half. Okay. So we used to go seriously. Yeah. So we used to go, we would go through, it was worth it. I mean, at, at the Nürburgring in 86, we set on pole by seven tenths of a second okay. over the Jaguar factory, over the Rothmans factory. Uh, you know, all, I mean, every, every, everybody that was anybody was there and Bootson in the car with our limited slip smoked them. Yeah. Uh, you were, t- we, you were telling us in person, a while back that uh, a lot of guys were running spools for a while. And then you guys developed a limited slip. Um, and actually I think Rich, Richard Lloyd's guys in England. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of those guys had worked in formula one and they convinced, uh, I think it's Rob Gustafson to build a Salisbury limited slip that would fit the 962 teams. And I think Richard Lloyd had the first one, and then John Fitzpatrick's teams had them in, uh, I believe, 84. When I was at Fitz in 85, before I went to Brun in 86, that's where I saw it. Right. And when I went to Brun, you know, all of our cars there all had spools in them. And I said, look, there's out of England, there's a limited slip. And uh, we actually got one, and, and that was my baby. You know, that, <laughs> that year in the various in the various series that we raced in between the world championship and the inter-series and super cup um we had nine pole positions that year and eight of those pole positions were with the limited slip and eight of the pole positions were with the big motor <laughs> Not, do, uh, as far as rule, it, but like the rules but, didn't dictate that you're allowed to do one or the other or, or what were like no. the, what were actually the rules for stuff like that no, they were, I mean, you had an engine size, but remember group C at that point uh, was fuel consumption. So you had X amount of fuel okay. to do the race with. And that was it. And you want to have a thousand horsepower engine, well, you're going to run out of fuel halfway through the through the event. But 
the point I was making is, as far as the qualifying, back to the point of the qualifying show. Yeah. We would go through as as the guys that worked on my car. There was five of us that worked on the car, and we were so excited because you knew at that point uh, you would start the practice with the the two point eight uh, engine, two point eight liter engine, and when it came down to uh, getting ready to qualify, we would stay, and you know, as soon as the practice was over, with guys would just start stripping down. You know, getting the car split apart and put the big engine in it, and uh, you put the big engine in. As soon as qualifying was over with, and you got out of tech or whatever, bam, take that engine out and put the race engine back in. <laughs> you know, so <clears throat> you know it. It was we could do that in probably two and a half hours. It's not too bad. Something like that. Whatever. No, it's not too bad. I mean, we were on cars like the March 82G or whatever. I mean, it was five, five professional guys and, and it was an eight hour engine change. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just totally, totally painful. Invasive. Uh, but, yeah. but, but, you know, when you had the engines completely ready, you're used to doing it, you know, everything's boom, 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 you know, and everybody knows what they're doing, but you would go through the trouble to do that because you knew that there was a chance you put it in the right hands. Um, and uh that was how you got up you'd be in pole position yeah 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 i mean at spa at spa it was typical weather at spa in 86 and there was one kind of dry line that just from the safety cars going around and everything and you put terry in the car which is boots and it's on track with that engine the diff the you know the car that we had at that point front wing on the nose and he put her on pole, I think, by almost nine tenths of a second over everybody. <laughs> oh, it was unbelievable. <clears throat> we're sitting there watching, you know, he'd done a couple laps in practice, we're like ninth. And you're looking at the board, you know, okay, all right, something's going on here. And then, you know, he disappears from ninth and you're sitting there and you're kind of looking up the fifth or fourth or something like that, and you realize, oh shit, we're on pole by almost a second. Wow. You know? Yeah, in the so, in the world championship that, series, not just uh, yeah, not just the club no, race. No, 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 no. So you know when you were when you're when you're a full time pro guy, that's what you live for. Yeah, you know that's the kind of thing that you'll do. You know he he does his job, and you're going to make sure whether it's working Christmas Day, mm -hmm. whatever it needs to be you're going to do whatever you're going to do because you're going to get the results if you give him the right tools. Yeah, man, that's a, that's a giant difference in engine displacement though uh, for a, for a flat six Porsche. <laughs> I, I tell you, it was, it would take the ring gear bolts, which that the, the diff used the Porsche ring gear bolts, Porsche, obviously the Porsche ring and pinion uh, on it. It used to flatten the threads on the ring gear bolts because it was trying to twist the ring gear off the diff housing. The qualifying motor did? <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. So there was no question. I mean, sometimes we, you know, look at that. You had no, you had no outside adjuster on the diff. You had, you know, none of this, none of this magic stuff that we have these days. You know, we would sometimes pull the entire left front suspension, pull the thing, drive the axle. Take the housing out, take the diff out, open the diff up, look at it, put it all back together again. Hours worth of work. Yeah. 
But, you know, after an event like that, you know, it was take the thing apart and you go, holy shit, look at this thing. <laughs> it's just all you know? <clears throat> And you could hear it. I mean, there was no doubt in your mind yeah um that was that was one of the races one one funny thing about that race as well because it, i saw in sports car 365 a couple of days ago they gave the top five races at spa uh ever and our race in 86 with that car made the made the list as it should um when you were ahead of the game you would you know and, and you see this at indy with the guys that cover the rear wings and cover the front wings and they take the nose off and immediately cover the springs and the shocks so you can't see the packers or the bump robbers in the car and when you were ahead of the game it's such a good feeling you could really screw with everybody else so before the warm-up when we had pole and then then the only other thing after that was in the morning it was a little warm-up uh and then the thousand k race the six-hour race mm -hmm. So we made a, we had a, a, a little wing on the front of the nose uh, that a lot of the cars were starting to run in the U.S. and we ran it in, in Europe and played with a lot and got it to work. Um, so we made other wing mounts and made a dual plane, a dual plane wing, mounted two wings up on the front of it just to screw with guys. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the, the door, the garage door slide down to the pit lane. There's no wall there, uh, no wall between the garage and the pits. So we're sitting there for the very last minute, like five minutes to go. We pull up the garage door. We have the car cover on it, push the car cover off, take the car cover off. And here's this wing that sits about two feet in the air that's got two wings on top of the thing. Mm -hmm. We had guys, head engineers from Waukenshaw, from Jaguar, people taking pictures. This will never work. Oh my God, look at this. How, uh, you know, how the hell are we going to beat this thing? And then about two minutes before we go, we, you know, change that nose and put the regular nose back on. <laughs> just be able, just being able to screw with guys. Hey guys. Um, Let's uh, let's take a quick break, sure. and uh, we'll um, thank our partners. We want to give a big shout out to Johnny and all the crew at Nine Lives Racing. They started with aluminum wings for chassis specific and custom fitments. They've now got a huge catalog of products, including carbon wings for just about all the hottest track cars. They're made in the USA, and they're probably the best bang for the buck aero company in the market today. So visit NineLivesRacing.com and find your perfect wang. Slip Angle is supported by FCP Euro at fcpeuro.com. Purchases over $49 are offered free shipping with a lifetime replacement guarantee and hassle-free returns. FCP Euro really does offer lifetime replacement guarantees on everything they sell. Brakes, suspension parts, filters, gaskets, seals, injectors, even engine oil. That means that any of you drivers with junky race cars, if you buy FCP Euro parts and you crash on the racetrack and you break your control arms, you can mail them right back. So make sure you head on over to fcpeuro.com and support companies that support the Slip Angle podcast. We want to give a big shout out to Andrew Rains and all of the team at Apex Pro for their continued data partnership with the Slip Angle podcast. Head on over to tracktune.com slash slipangle to get a package deal. This includes the Apex Pro data unit, a free suction mount 
and also a one-hour data review session with Mr. Andrew Rains himself, all for $449. So go to tracktune.com slash slipangle and make sure to check it out. So uh, where did we leave off? All right, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bridge us back in. Um, so before Abe and the ads rudely interrupted us, uh, <laughs> Gary was uh, telling us about intimidating all of his competitors so that they ruined... So that he ruined their day uh, at the start of a race with a double-decker wing on the 962. <laughs> you know, it's one of the few opportunities you actually had the time to be able to do that. You know, it's uh, – but uh, it, it was fun. It was fun to be able to do that because uh, Jaguar, Jaguar guys would do stuff to us. And, you know, you just – you did that kind of stuff when you could get away with it. And it was It was a – I don't know. I won't say it was an easier time. Uh, the cars were were uh, were complicated. Uh, you could, you know, we did a lot more back then than you do now with the current cars. I mean, you take a GT3 car now, uh, you know, the engine does 20,000 kilometers. You know, you could do Petite and Daytona and all the practice and testing and then maybe put an engine in before uh, Sebring, you know, so... That was certainly not the case uh, back then. Yeah, everything was a little bit more niche and uh, handmade, huh? Uh, that and, and and stressed out. You know, you were you were yeah. using a lot of things. I mean, when they changed to the 3.5 uh, Formula One engines in Group C in '91, '91, '92, there were guys that would show up. Those engines were over two hundred thousand dollars a piece. And guys that would have, you know, four of them in the truck, and you'd pop oh one and gosh. stick another one in, and pop that one, and stick another one in, and you know. But you were turning it. I mean, there was it was uh, almost Formula One uh, RPMs, uh, not the dramatic V10 stuff, but um, you know, the car the cars were quick. I think in '91, uh, Martin Brundle in the uh, I forget the Jag uh, XJ15. Uh, the number he did a time at Monza that would have put him six on the Formula One grid. Holy cow! <clears throat> yeah, so you know the, <laughs> the the car the cars were fast, but you had to, you know, when you've got something like that, uh, especially back in those days when we didn't have the monitoring systems that we have now to to know that a hey, you know something's about to pop. Um, you know, you were running at that you were running at that edge. Yeah. And that goes back a little bit to the, you know, you, you can't run what you can do for one one lap or two laps in qualifying. Uh, you, you can't race that way, especially not in a six-hour, 1,000K race. No. Yeah, I wonder what the what the big changes like in, in F1 that they're making after qualifying are. Um, but I, I don't know enough about modern F1. It doesn't, it doesn't like tickle my fancy as much as many. Um, but that's a huge dramatic difference. But uh, yeah, well, 25 years ago, is, 30 you know, years ago. Part of it, I'm sure, is making sure that the tires last, right? Because it seems like, yeah. you know, when those cars go out and they try and do a qualifying lap, um, you know, they, they may do, you know, one or two hot laps on a set and then they are, you know, cast off. Um, you know, it's it's hard for me to believe that a tire can be used up that quickly, but maybe. Um, and oh, so, I, I, yeah, I can tell you from from what I talked about earlier with the qualifying tires from 
from Yoko or Michelin, I mean, in those days when there was, you didn't have a spec tire, you know, there might be three or four different makes of tires in the, in the race. Somebody had Goodyear, somebody had Bridgestone, somebody had Michelin, Yoko's, Dunlop's uh, in Europe. Um, and, and it was a dramatic fall off because the tire was running at this maximum temperature that it had. It couldn't sit there and run, you know, at 260 degrees for very long at all, you know. No. No, just melt. Yeah. So it's it's hard for me to uh, imagine going to a race with $800,000 worth of spare engines just in a truck. <laughs> And that's just the engines. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, think think about, you know, all the other stuff that goes. But, I mean, here's, we're talking about crazy car, and it's, it's a different thing. Ferrari Challenge. You know, the the ceramic mix brakes that are on the Ferrari Challenge cars the uh, last couple of years, uh, actually five or six years. I think they start with the 458s. And it's transition of four eighty eights, a set of four discs, and all the pads were just at about thirty one thousand dollars. That's unbelievable. Yeah, well, it's wild. ridiculous. <clears throat> it, it 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 really is ridiculous because you're at a point that carbon is nowhere near as expensive as that is, and you have in the ECU. Uh, sensors in it that tells you when you have to change the brakes. Well, we knew we actually when I worked for the guys out in California, we actually on the cars that we would go out and and have for uh, running new clients with and stuff like that, we could disconnect that, so you could actually run the pad uh, lower and actually later on changed and put steel brakes on it you know if you want yeah. to go out button willow and and drive we had a 360 a 430 and a 458 uh at scooter corsa that you could you could come out and rent if you thought you know after doing seca or whatever you thought you wanted to race in a higher level and come into for a challenge uh for x amount of dollars a day you could go out and we actually kept three cars at Button Willow in, in a garage. You know, a couple of hours uh, from L.A., we're running cars. Yeah. And at that point, there's no need. We put the, the adapted steel brakes on the car and PFCs or something. The guy got a good pedal in it. Uh, he didn't need this big fancy uh, brakes. Well, it's, it's uh, kind of funny because, uh, what, last week, unless some people have been talking about some things that I don't know about, I had to dispel a rumor that GLTC was going to be adding a, what is it, nine and a half to one uh, power to weight class. And I, oh, I started really? to think about it and I was like, well, wait, like if you want to start going playing with like big V8 cars to do wheel to wheel, there are other series options that do that. And if yeah. you are big baller anyway, there are pro series that you can find your way into a seat. So if that's what you want to do, you could go there. But yeah, anybody yeah, we, want, anybody wants to do that, you know, the cheapest deal in town these days, if you want to go pro racing, is Trans Am. Right. You know, right. go to Trans Am. Uh, I remember talking to Doug Peterson. It's been four or five years ago, and, and Doug told me, you know, besides a little bit of prep in the shop, that his running costs were 
you know, 25,000 a weekend. You know, if you didn't tear anything up, didn't blow an engine, you know, he had a couple of carryover sets from the last event that he could do his practice on and buy a couple of sets of tires and have the hotel and the guys and this and that. And that's cheap. For it, pro racing, that's really cheap. That's yeah. cheap for, for that. And, and Trans Am's actually having a, uh, a renaissance right now. Uh, they've also added uh, a GT3 uh, class in it. So, yeah. you know, but yeah, it's what, what Grid Life does uh you know that that's it's growing every time you guys go out it's growing there's no need to to sit here and do anything else to it i mean we talked about a home for the gt3 guys at one point uh with you guys but uh that was only because we had a bunch of cars that are in that uh in that class that were yeah. you know, six cars were ready to go it would have been a fairly easy uh, thing to blend them in somehow or even have their own. I think we were actually talking about having their own race. Right, uh, right. You don't want to go back in, and this, uh, putting my series hat on, one of the biggest things you always have to worry about when you're mixing the big class, especially going to bigger racetracks, is closing speeds. Absolutely. You know? no, I'm, yeah, I'm super against anything else except for GLTC in GLTC because that's one of the best parts of that is not having mixed class racing. You know, I, I rate back when I drove an SCCA and, and I had a little F production Sprite. Um, and I remember I was always felt happy, you know, if I was in the – what was it, uh, EFG and C sedan uh, versus being in the DEF uh, class where you were always constantly getting passed. And right. it took the fun out of the race because instead of being able to concentrate on the guys you're racing with, you always had your eyes, you know, in the mirror, are these guys coming back around again, you know? Yeah. Now we've actually talked about, you know, what if with other, uh, with other different versions of the same style of club racing that we do with JLTC, but no, there's no immediate active plans for anything. Well, on top we've, of that, uh, like I can get the, you know, the, the desire to have a higher power car, um, we're doing yeah. wheel to wheel with us at the same time, uh, higher power means higher operating costs and it means everything it often means less reliability. And I, I would argue that trying to run a 700 horsepower Corvette for sprint races is, uh, in terms of competition, I'm sure the competition is not any better than trying to run a 200 horsepower car if your goal is to compete, right? If your goal is to, to run a, a big, fast, loud, heavy car, then that's fine. And there are other series for that. But in right. terms of competition, I would argue that the GLTC series at the moment is is intensely competitive, and it is less expensive than many other options. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, ab yeah. absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, guys vote with their feet, you know, and and they're coming to you, so that tells you something, you know, that tells you something right there. So, you know, I, yeah, I'm I, not gonna. Not going to mess with it. <laughs> yeah, and, and and the same thing. I mean, what we were just saying, it's more expensive. The big cars wear out tires faster. You know, you go from I don't know what the guys spend on a on a budget to be at the racetrack in a GLTC car, um, but it's got to be probably a third or a quarter of what you would if you're trying to run. You know, the big cars that you run in Time Attack, your big Viper, your Corvettes. 
some of those things you imagine those guys. Oh, those are big, big money. Um, I would yeah. argue that, and Adam, you can weigh in on this if I'm wrong, <clears throat> but including the cost for towing and a hotel if you get one and fuel and tires and entry fee, all of those things, I would bet that a GLTC race could be run for $1,500 to $2,000, depending on where you live and how far away it is from the event? Yeah, I think there's a lot of people on street tires or cast-off Hoosiers or whatever that are doing it for sub-1,000 bucks, you know, if they're semi-local. Right, so if you like, if you live in North Dakota and you're trying to tow to Road Atlanta, of course it's going to be more expensive. Yeah, but, sure. Yeah. Uh, in terms of running costs for the event, I know a lot of drivers have said that they will, on average, use a pair of Hoosiers uh, per event. So, yeah, uh, yeah, they'll they'll use it in they'll use it in the uh, in the front, and then it'll go to the back or vice versa, depending on the car. So yeah, and um, and I mean that's the key as well to keeping the races short. You yeah, know, the, yeah. the minute you start wanting to do enduros, I mean, I work for, I'm in race control now with SRO, and I remember when. Five years ago, we were t they were talking about going from a straight sprint race uh, to running an uh, endurance race or, or one that required fueling, which is what we're doing now. You know, what you have to remember, okay, now I need a fuel rig. Now I need a dead man. Now I need a fueler. Now I need fire suits. Now I need a helmet. Da, 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 you know, now I need the radios and, the, you know, all this stuff yeah. that goes on. Every time you do that, I think one of the keys to – uh, the success that we're having with GLTC is the fact that you've got these 16 minute, whatever they are, 14, 16, 17 minute races, and you got a handful of them. You know, if you don't do one well here, that's part of the fun. I enjoy so much being able to talk that format to other guys in race control and other series, you know, where we invert the first three rows or, we do yeah. this or do that and everybody's agreed to it because it's such a special thing that we have and i'm not going to tear up uh, talking about it here but you know to be able to do that and still have that kind of fun factor uh that the guys are you know still enjoying themselves and feel that they are a part of the steering of the series you know, and that keeps them engaged. And, and that's a very cool thing to do. Uh, we, we always try to do, whether it was Grand Am or MSO or, or SRO, you put out uh, surveys and you ask the guys, what do you want to do and where do you want to go? And, you know, you get some guys that think it's a good idea. Um, and you get some guys that think it's a horrible idea. Just make the decision and tell us what to do. But like I said, right now in GT3 world, in the United States, five different places to go. You know, I mean, it's to me, it's it's just mind blowing to think that there are that many people with enough bankroll and interest to run that many different series. Like that's to me, that's wild. You know, there's a there's a new series that the uh, the Morgan family put together out on the West Coast, and I think they're running uh, Laguna, Sonoma, Thunder, uh, Thunder Hill. Uh, Todd Snyder's the uh, race director for it. And I talked to Todd a couple of days ago. Uh, their first event uh, this year, they're supposed to have 16 GT3 cars. Now they can be the new, the new era of cars or older cars, but 16 in the first race. 
you know, Mercedes and Porsches and Ferraris and all that. You know, that's that's not a bad that's not a bad uh, not a bad car count for your first event. Yeah, no kidding. No. I mean, sixteen is sixteen is quite a lot. Um, yeah, and you have to wonder with cars with that much potential. At what point would more cars give you more more headache on track? It's just uh yeah and and you wind up it's the same thing a little bit in ferrari challenge you wind up with uh, uh, sub uh classes in that class because you wind up with uh, drivers uh a big disparity uh, in the drivers at that point um and anyway we'll see how that develops they've yet to run their first race uh this year they uh they actually got shut down. I think they were supposed to run in uh, on uh, April or into March, and then with the COVID nineteen virus deal, um, they got shut down. Especially with everything being in California. Yeah, that COVID nineteen, she is a deal, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, boy, it's a bore. You know, uh, what a deal. We, yeah, yeah, it's um, a bore. Well, you you sent us a few uh, ideas for uh, I don't know if we said this at the beginning. You sent us a few ideas for things to ask you about. Um, so basically, Gary's programming his own show, which is probably smarter. <laughs> um, I, one of them was uh, one of them was worst crashes with your cars and the goofy reasons why. Uh, you got anything uh, in mind for that one? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I might have had a martini after that or something, but uh, we we've had in the past. I've been very fortunate, uh, knock on wood, and, and I've never had a fatality in a, a car that we were putting together. Uh, even back when we ran two forty seven down Molson Strait, um, cool uh, before the before the chicanes, but uh, was very lucky uh, whether we changed out the pieces or re-engineered the parts that were weak on the car or uh, were more conservative. I was very lucky. We've lost some good friends uh, over the time, but with other teams. But a couple of the just spectacular uh, uh, crashes, uh, Oscar Larari uh, in 1989 at Fuji. And uh, Fuji is a um, fast racetrack. Uh, it's got a corner called 100R that goes down. Um, and we're doing in the 962, we were in a Brun car at that point, uh, close to 170 miles an hour. And we had Yoko's. Yoko's was our sponsor. And we blew a Yoko. And he came, hit the Armco, and the car flew through the air and hit a billboard that bounced him back into the racetrack because if not he would have gone the other side of the armco at that point where that billboard was a hill that was probably at a 25 degree angle so if the billboard hadn't been there he would have flown out of the park i mean he'd gone all fireball roberts on everybody gone out of the park and probably fallen you know 40 feet even though we would hit at an angle, he hit the billboard 17 feet. I actually climbed up on it after it was all over with, and you could see the marks where the car hit the hit the sign 17 feet off the ground, and then it inverted, came back down in the race, and landed upside down, nose first, 
and then rolled up and got slammed up against the um, the guardrail, and he was trapped inside the car. Unfortunately, it didn't catch on fire. Uh, Paolo Barilla uh, from Barilla Pasta was actually driving a Toyota, and George Fouché, a South African driver, was driving a Porsche. And both those guys, uh, this was the camaraderie that we had in the Japanese uh, JSPC uh, championship back in that time period. Uh, both those guys stopped to help the marshals get out, uh, which is pretty rare. You used to see that in Formula One in the older days with the fire danger and stuff like that. Uh, and Oscar got out of the car and, and cracked his thumb from the being on the steering wheel. Cause he that was, was it. Guy. Yeah, I have a picture of myself when we got the car back to the shop. Uh, we had a, a race shop. It was in Gatemba, about five miles away from the track. And I'm actually sitting in the car in the front bulkhead, basically, with the master cylinders, was knocked, was broken loose. And I've got a picture of me with my feet sticking out of the front of the car with, you know, no no master cylinders. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it was one of those things. It was watered up into a ball. And when we got to it, you didn't, you, you're looking around going, where's the car? And then you realize, oh my God, that's it, jammed up against the armco on the other side. It's that it's that ball of thing over there. It's that ball of thing. The following yeah. year, we're at Daytona with him on the Yokos, and we had just broken the lap record. And he's going around, and the next lap was going to be faster. We had enough telemetry at that point. We could see that his speed going down the back straightaway was 300, he picked up 300 RPM, and he's going up into NASCAR 3, NASCAR 4. As he gets up into NASCAR 4, there was a GT car that had moved all the way up to the uh, high line. And Oscar, instead of backing off, instead of backing off, hang on, it's about that. We still there? Yep, yep. we're here. And Oscar, instead of backing off, jerked the car down up in the loaded section of turn four to pass in the middle lane of the banking. Fortunately, there was a guy up there with the Ford family motor driving there with a motor drive running. Scheiße. Sitting there with the motor drive running, and the tire broke the bead. And so you can see this guy came to us. Uh, you know, a week later, whatever, he got us the photos of how the you could see the wheel coming out. Oh my gosh! When it broke the bead, <clears throat> he actually dug in, turned sideways, dug in with the wheel, flew straight up in the air. And when this was not a factory uh, tub, it was a uh, carbon tub done by Thompson in England, and came straight down on the roof. When it did that, it split the carbon where the roll cage is, like the behind the driver's head, split the carbon down, exposed the fuel cell, but didn't damage the fuel cell, and collapsed the roll cage down. So uh, Steve was watching one of the uh, chief mechanic on the car at the time, was watching telemetry, and he says, hey, I think we've got an engine problem. I don't see any RPM on it and then we hear this and he slid from the exit of turn four all the way down into the grass of the trio i was the Holy second guy. 
I ran, I jumped the wall and ran across the pit lane. I was the second guy and got him out of the car at that point. Again, he had a cracked thumb. But what was so yeah. stupid, <laughs> car did not roll. We had a Dave Clem Fab Car aluminum wing on the back of the, the car. And that wing was so strong, the car never rolled. So it slid on its roof. The side pods and the doors were in perfect condition, other than the fact that the roof was crushed down. And Oscar's helmet had a hole in it because it had driven, it had dragged his head along the asphalt, and I could stick my finger through the hole in his head. Now, Oscar's maybe five foot four, oh my God. maybe five foot five, you know, a Stuck or Walter Brunn or a Ratzenberger, anybody would have been dead. You know, it would have yeah. broken the neck or whatever at that point. When you see that car, and there's photos of that car there, you would not believe how that split that carbon down and crushed that roof down. But in both cases, he got out of that with a crack thumb, was the only, because of the steering wheel. Um, yeah. But just, just some spectacular uh, stuff there. We're you know, very, very, uh, very lucky. Very lucky. Were, were, were both of those 962s? Or what? <laughs> yeah. 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 And then we yeah, had one. They, Go ahead. I was going to say, they, they, they made all kinds of versions of the tubs on those. So you ran carbon well, and it, aluminum. And... When, yeah, when, when the, the original cars, uh, you know, this was really uh, Porsche's first go at making uh, a monocot. And the original right. cars, uh, the 956s, I mean, when, when Beloff got killed at Spa, the cars did not accordion in the crash. They've been up or they've been down, mm. uh, depending on the hit there. So the floor was uh, was just a single sheet of aluminum. Uh, the front bulkhead where the master cylinders are, if when you pump the brakes, that actually moved. Mm-hmm. You know. So later on, uh, guys, particularly in the states, would go through and have. Uh, Fabcar did a lot of that work and later on became the official uh, Porsche repair for the United States. Uh, would go in and put a machine bulkhead in. We put thicker floor on the cars. Um, I, I can't remember all the time. It was like 40,000 aluminum, you know, on the floor. So we started adding weight to it. And then cars went to, uh, out on the West Coast, they had a group called Chapman. Uh, built uh, aluminum honeycomb uh, cars, and then there were uh, hybrid cars that came from uh, from England that had carbon tops and uh, and aluminum bottom carbon cars. But at that point, it was a moot. You know, the technology had moved on, and and you were racing against these you know Formula One engine cars in '91, '92. You could do whatever you were going to do, and you weren't going to you weren't going to be competitive at that point. But uh, what happened to all those 962s that you wrecked? Do you guys just throw them away, pull the parts off of them, and throw them away? Uh, they had a little sticker on the top. They had a little brass 962 tag. You know, you would try to save one piece and uh, and stick that tag on something else. I mean, you bought tubs. There was right. always, unless you melted it down into a pile of slag, uh, there was always something that was usual, usable. And might have to be x-rayed and crack-checked and, and all the rest of it. And depending on what your budget was, uh, there was always something that was uh, left over. But it was very rare to have such a bad crash that you couldn't get, you know, something out of. 
you know, yeah. if it was a frontal yeah. thing or if it was a back thing. But um, what was the what was the worst crash that you ever uh, were a part of on the team? I think uh, I mean those those were those were car finishing. You know, would have been a a real high potential for a fatality, especially the Daytona, if it yeah. had been a bigger guy in the car. Um, I think at uh, 85 uh, in practice at Le Mans, uh, we put out a uh, we put our car out, and it was uh, English driver Dudley Wood, and um, we had had a problem with a brand new engine from Porsche. Uh, the alternator was bad. One well, order to change the alternator, you had to take practice. We lost the entire practice because of screwing around. Take the engine out, take the top off, da, da, da. you know, I mean, it's not a simple thing to do. That tells you the quality of the parts that would normally be there because a Bosch alternator, you never had to do anything to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we sent him out full full tanks, and in those days, like now, you had to do uh, three laps uh, in the evening practice to be able to qualify for the race. So we told uh, we told Dudley, I says, look, you've got new pads, you've got full tanks, you need to go out, and just do a shakedown, it's a brand new engine, you know, do your shakedown, come back in again. So no radios, and we're sitting there, and at that point, you know, a lap, his lap time uh, in anger would have been, you know, four minutes something. So we figured, okay, you know, six minutes. Give him six minutes, cold tires. So we're looking four minutes, goes by five minutes, six minutes. We're starting to look down the down the way there. Okay, he should be coming in six and a half, seven minutes. All right, seven and a half minutes. All right, where the fuck is he, you know? <laughs> eight minutes. Yeah. And about nine minutes, I walked down, and in the old pits, there was a Marshall station, um, and um, you would walk into the marshal say, of course, nobody spoke English, and I spoke just enough French to to ask, uh, where is the Oui La Voiture 55? Where is the car 55? And the little uh, French guy sits there, and he has a, a big map of a circuit, and he points down to this area, and he goes, La Bosque, it's in the forest. Oh, no. Yeah, and, I think uh, you've told part of this story yeah, before. you got to keep telling it. <laughs> And and we go down. Well, he had he had tried to pass. Uh, we didn't make the first lap out in practice. There were cars that were already going out there. Well, these guys were qualifying to get their qualifying over and done with. So he had tried to go on the outside of the kink uh, in Mulsan of a qualifying C2 car that the guy was on the gas. You know, so at that point you had a two-lane French road with a little teeny shoulder on it and then some grass and the Armco. And this guy drifted over. They came together. Uh, both cars actually wound up, I think, over the guardrail. Um, he, got up on the, he got up on the guardrail on the passenger side, and it ripped the floor up uh, and almost peeled the metal to touch the dash on the passenger side. He pivoted on the top of the guardrail, Missed the fuel tank completely, not a mark underneath the floor of the fuel tank, knocked the camshafts out of the engine, the turbos, exhaust, 
the rear suspension on the one side as it pivoted across the armco and then flung him into the into the woods and uh hit him he broke his leg actually um but that was a case of total man, destruction uh, just total destruction hurt got hurt but the fact that it pivoted around a hundred liters of fuel at that point mm -hmm. and didn't touch that, didn't go upside down, didn't burst into flames. Uh, you know, it was, was a, a very lucky case. I mean, one of those where you went, okay, you know, we missed a, we missed a bullet here. I mean, we've broken a couple of guys leg. We broke Mara Baldi's leg at Daytona and, you know, a couple other things, but, uh, like I said, very, very lucky, uh, and I think you make a lot of your own luck, but very lucky never to never to have anybody uh, ever have anybody pass away die in one of our cars. Uh, did did the did the fuel tanks in that was what eighty five you said? Yeah. Um, did they have like a ballistic bladder cell inside or no? It had a it had a uh, a very good. I think the, the Porsche nine sixty two system was very good, but it was just a standard bladder. Okay. Uh, I forget who made them at that point. Sobeck or somebody made them, you know, had a, a hole between the seats in it that you took a panel off and, and took the catch tank. It was, it was the best thought out as you would expect from, you know, from Porsche, uh, system. In fact, when we had the Mercedes a couple of years ago, um, their whole fuel inside of their fuel system was this Mickey mouse, this rubber thing, and then take the little boat, and this pump fits in here, and then this tube comes back in here. And I actually told one of the engineers, I said, "Look, I can give you the, you know, the drawings out of the Porsche books I have here. You know, you want to know a system? Just copy that. <laughs> Whatever you guys have tried to invent here is a bunch of crap. Yeah, you know, it's too complicated. It's copy yeah. way too complicated. So, um, I think the other thing." that we talked about uh were some of the great fixes yeah best mechanical you know, fixes during the race best mechanical yeah. fixes uh, and and guys that were scrambling around at that uh, point and and a couple of those and and i know we're going to run out of time here but i think one of the best ones um was at Le Mans in 81 and we had the porsche gearbox you know the engine of the 935 sticking out the back so you had the gearbox was in the middle for the thing and had a plate across the top and we had the guys come in and they go you know the the car feels like there's something moving inside and greg elif was the uh, our crew chief at that point and team manager and he and i jump into the car and there was just two big bolts you know that had pulled the threads and so every time they would shift the gearbox would lift up <laughs> <clears throat> and I mean, lift up. Yeah, <laughs> and lift up. And the only thing that's keeping it from not lifting up any higher is the shifters connected to it. Uh, so at that point, I think we were trying to figure out what to do, and we scrambled around and and uh, got a ratchet. We had actually shipped our tractor trailer to uh, to France and actually ran and got a tie-down, ratchet tie-down, and wrapped it around the uh, torque tube in the um, – in the chassis and finished i think 12 hours of the race with a ratchet tie down uh holding the gearbox and took two this bolts. is 
This is so during bowls. the race? Yeah, during the race, took two bolts, cool. and pounded them <laughs> in, you know, bigger thread, knocked them in like nails, and then took this right. ratchet tie-down strap, and and so we would keep it located. It's fine. Yeah, the, the straps are just the best. Thing. They are the best. They are the best. <laughs> you yeah, know, the other yeah, thing that was funny that uh, before, and there's so much reference because we – we ran so many races in those years, 26, 27 races with the cars. So you saw everything that could ever happen. In the 956 and the early 962s, we had twin calipers. On each corner, there were two small calipers. Why is that? So they didn't have a big enough wheel uh, at that point, And that was the best way to get more braking uh was to, uh, you couldn't put a bigger caliper in it because you didn't have a big enough wheel yeah, so at yeah. the time that it was designed that's what they decided to do so we would go to war with eight friggin calipers so you start <laughs> changes, and we got to when we won spa uh in 86 instead of waiting like everybody would do at the third hour you would change the entire front axle where the pads well you couldn't do it normally in the time that it took the fuel. So we knew that we had to go through there and be as quick as we could on every stop. We started changing pads at the at the end of the first hour. You know, just change the pad cha- and just change two and then change two and then change oh, two. Oh, because you couldn't change, change eight. And yeah. Change, yeah, you weren't going to do all four. So I'm going to ask but, a dumb question. <laughs> but, but wait, wait. <laughs> so the, the thing was the crossover tubes would crack. And, you know, you would hear sometimes or that was one of the things is the guys would pull the, the wheel off. You would always look at the inside of the wheel and you would sometimes see a little drip of fluid. So everybody had a dash three cap and plug. And we moved the reservoirs to the master cylinders up so you could actually see them and the driver could see them. And sometimes you would go through at that point and see that, yell out, change that, take the line out, put a plug in it put a cap on that caliper or not, but, um, and then have the driver just slowly push the brake pedal down to self-bleed that line, and yeah. you finish the race without a caliper on the rear. Yeah, just lock you know? it out, huh? And it doesn't matter. Just lock it off, you know? Yeah. Anyway, what was your question? No, this, this is going to be a stupid question, but obviously the cars are racing, and the brakes are all on fire or nearly on fire the entire race. When a car comes in to... Uh, make a pit stop and you need to do pad changes how does the the crewman like get access to pads to make changes without like burning themselves uh, fair. you know big I gloves say, <laughs> well, like, actually, but with fireproof gloves or whatever you you don't no. have any dexterity at all uh, actually not actually not we use little teeny in fact before the mechanics gloves came out we used to use um uh, golf gloves Golf gloves or baseball gloves that were made out of goat skin or really tiny, but it, you learn to be very good. I mean, if you take a single, uh, single uh, caliper down, like a Brembo or, or Alcon or something, uh, as you would pop it, pop it through. Uh, one of the fastest way I, there were guys that used the brake pliers. Uh, I always was fat that would push back both pads at the yeah. same time. Yeah, push the pistons back in. Yeah. <clears throat> then you would take uh, the pads out, and then throw the the pliers back in there and push the pistons back. 
what I always preferred to do, which I thought was faster, and I could almost always beat other guys that would do that, and this is before ABS, a much harder time with ABS now, um, is that you would have a big pair of channel locks, and you would grab, and a big screwdriver, and you'd grab that big pair of channel locks and take the brake pad uh, backing plate and the caliper and push that back. Man, that's what I do now. Push that back to the point that you could get the screwdriver between the pad and the disc and then force it back and use the brake pad to push the pistons back. Slide that out, slide that out, put a pad back in it, do exactly the same thing on the other side. And that way you're not screwing around because the other problem you had in some cases is you're doing a driver change. So the driver's getting in and out and I'll tell you a real funny story. And if you weren't careful, and you always told the guys and reminded you know, had some guy go in the car and <clears throat> he's trying brakes. to get situated, he steps on yeah. the brake pedal. Son of a bitch. I'm trying to Son do something bitch. here. And, and I, <laughs> I remember it's fun in 87. Uh, we had one of our one of the three cars, um, and there was a mechanic, and it was Jimmy. And Jimmy was about five foot, little Jimmy. And... Um, they had they were doing a pad change it was kind of the junior team and we're sitting here the other car comes in and we're all mothering with the other car and all of a sudden and and jimmy's mentor was iggy ignacio denoto and iggy was one of the crew chiefs like myself and all of a sudden you can hear iggy iggy and we look and we look up and jimmy because the pit lane is is at an angle is downhill at Spa, and and little Jimmy's running after this brake piston, and oh, it's no, rolling that... down. <laughs> <laughs> it's rolling down. You know, he's ten feet from the car trying to chase this brake piston, uh, and of course, uh, you know, at that point, uh, you gotta wipe it, uh, wipe it off, and uh, stick it back in. You know, what yeah, I did. Hope wipe it didn't. Hope it works. <laughs> you know. And you go yeah, but it, yeah, but if, more fluid in it. Yeah, if you use the piston or the cat, the old pads to pry it back, then you only have like a half a second where you pull in and pull out with the. Uh, and, and that's exactly why I would do that. Yeah, you're not sitting there. Yeah, you know, I actually had burn marks on my hands because I remember uh, having that. I pulled the pad out at one point, and uh, I think it was Perea, the Spanish driver. Uh, he stepped on the brake pad, and here they come. And I stuck my hand in there and grabbed Holy the, shit. the pistons <laughs> and forced them back over. And I'm screaming at the top. This is on the front end of the car, and I'm screaming on the top of him to let off the thing. And fortunately, he took his foot off the brake and didn't smash my fingers up against a you know a glowing uh, glowing disc at that point. But uh, oh my gosh, you 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 learn, but you couldn't do it. I mean. Uh, one thing that we did as well back in those days, we had to change the front disc at Le Mans, uh, like at 13 hours. And, uh, in 1990, we finished, uh, first Porsche out of 22 and third and got on the podium with our, uh, our Porsche from the Alpha team in Japan. Uh, Jerry Woods and I, we, we used a generator exhaust and made a box and preheated because you, you know, when you sit there, you can't take a, a cold aluminum, uh, brake hat and get it over yeah. the expanded titanium hub uh, at that point. So we preheated everything, and uh, when you would pop the pop the caliper off, because at that point 
you did not have the capability of the design of now on some of the cars like Mercedes, you can you can take the disc out uh, and leave the caliper in place. There's enough play in there to be able to get that. Well, so that's smart. You'd pull the caliper, you'd take two screwdrivers into the uh, into the hole of the cooling holes of the disc, throw the disc up against the wall, take the preheated disc, stick that back on, caliper back on, pads back in. I think he and I, <clears throat> he and I uh, did the whole front axle um, disc and pads, I think, in three minutes and 20 seconds. It's pretty fast. It's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty That's fast. Pretty good. Two old guys, two old guys, because we knew at that point we knew that we could trust each other to do it and do one, and then go do the other one. And in the meantime, the other boys were changing the pads in the back and filling the car and doing all the rest of it. So, uh, but you know, there's all kinds of stuff. I remember Penske uh, years ago. I think in the Trans Am cars, uh, they had a vacuum uh, pump that they tried to get all the pistons to pull back, you know, into a system. So you would have a vacuum line that would go on the car when the car came in to try to get all the pistons to automatically pull back. But then you have to worry about cavitation and fluid and there's a lot of other things yeah. and nobody ever really got to, that to work very, uh, very efficiently. But, you know, there's quick disconnect fittings on the Dash 3 now of the calipers and you guys take the calipers completely off now and do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's... Uh... That's uh, man sticking your hand on hot brakes at Le Mans in the middle of the night. It sounds like you, it sucks, you gotta do but it also, you, do, you know, it you, also, uh, yeah. <laughs> if it, it it was worth the scar, you wear that scar with pride there. If that kept oh, you yeah. from uh, from uh, bleeding the brakes, I tell I tell you a crazy one, and not to keep down. There's a whole list of stories we can tell, but at Daytona in ninety. Two, maybe. Uh, we were running Hurley Haywood and uh, Ratzenberger and the IndyCar driver Scott Brayton um, and the Swedish AL in a 962 for Vern Chupin. And um, we had Brembo pads on it and the RS9, the yellow endurance pads. Hurley was in the car. He comes through the trioval, steps on the brakes. <clears throat> the brakes go to the floor. I hate so, that feeling. I had that happen once. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're coming at you're coming at turn one at you know 198 miles an hour or something, and um, the brakes go to the floor. So Hurley had the presence of mind. He didn't try to save it or spin it. He carried up into NASCAR one, right. got on the radio with us, came back around again, and managed to slow the car down and get it uh, stopped. And what we had discovered is that the pad material had cracked on the backing plate, had broken loose. Yeah. And the, and I still have somewhere the backing plate, the, the material had come and popped the keeper springs off the caliper and allowed the backing plate to wiggle itself out. And it was machining the inside of the wheel. So it of was course. trying to cut the wheel off. And Hurley was able to use, because the pistons had not come out. So the, the backing plate was still in there. It went, to the, it went to the floor because all of a sudden the, you know, 14, 15, uh, it's actually more than that, probably 17 millimeters of, of brake pad yeah, left, the material was gone. left the yeah. house, you know, fell off the, fell off the backing plate. 
and left, broke into pieces yep. and flowed throughout. So his braking was using the backing plate, and it got so hot that it it formed the shape of the pistons into the back of the backing plate till he could come back in. And, and he saved it, and it's one of the things with, with Hurley, you know, he might not be the fastest guy when you compare him to a, a Lommers or somebody like that, but he was so good and so smart uh, and so careful like that. Anybody else would have tried to spin the car and you know, hit the wall at turn one or do some other goofy thing, but, uh, you know, his his years and years of experience, um, you know, really saved the day in that case and got us a, got us a third place. You know, yeah. we changed the uh, change the disc and and uh, put another set of pads in it, and I think we left in 35 seconds or, so, or 40 seconds. That, so. so I was actually machining the wheel too, huh? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I had to get rid of that wheel. <laughs> that's a bad. That's a bad wheel now. Yeah. 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 So guys, yeah, when, we've been yeah. at this for uh, more than an hour, and I've yeah. got some mulch that I've got to move, but I would mulch. love if we could have Gary on the show again next week to talk about I think more stuff. I think we I found got, a decent I, means of recording here. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so too. I, I still got a. We'll, we'll save this for next time. But there's the uh, the fire with Johnny Rutherford and Rick Mears at Watkins Glen in uh, 1981 <laughs> that fixed with a, that we fixed with a water cooler. So we'll tell that story next time. Oh yeah, just just the that's no big deal. Just a fire yeah. with Rick Mears. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. thanks guys. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the Pits Air Grid Live to say hello. Hello.